Welcome to Hacking the South. I'm Adrian Baker. Today on the show, I speak with Gernot Hubert, who is a fellow expat in Chiang Mai. And Gernot is a very popular yoga teacher here. And I'm having him on the show to share his knowledge and wisdom in the area of yoga. He's particularly knowledgeable and has a strong background in yoga anatomy and physiology. So it's definitely um, a real podcast out there for the yoga fans and practitioners where we talk about different ways to approach our practice, some things he's learned in terms of alignment, best practices. We talk about the importance of understanding not only yoga anatomy, but also yoga physiology and what's happening to what our practice is doing to our nervous system and how that's affecting us energetically, not only in terms of practicing in a way that's anatomically sound. So the conversation got pretty technical at points, but I think overall it's also very accessible. You know, it definitely will be one that is of interest to those folks who are yoga practitioners and enjoy these kind of conversations. And if you fall into that camp or if you simply want to learn more about yoga, then I think you will really enjoy my conversation with Gernot. So a little bit of background on Gernot. He has been practicing and studying yoga since 1996. His yoga background includes Anusara, Iyengar, Forest, Kripalu, and Ashtanga yoga. And he holds a 200-hour yoga teacher training certificate from Yoga Alliance Registered Teacher Training Program. He was born in South Africa and raised in Germany, but he spent 20 years in the US, including his time as an undergraduate at Stanford University and a period of time where he was pursuing a PhD. He did complete his master's degree in ecology and evolutionary biology from Cornell University. And Gernot really does bring this background, I think, in terms of someone who has a comfort and familiarity with reading, you know, talking about science and, and talking about anatomy and physiology into his discussion of yoga. And he does that in a way that makes it accessible for a larger audience. As someone who's had the chance to go to his classes and just to get to know Gernot a little bit one-on-one, he's also a great guy. And I'm really happy to bring you my conversation with him. So with that said, now I give you my conversation with Gernot Hubert. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Okay, well, let's just start out with me thanking you very much for joining us. I really enjoyed the opportunities that we've had to, you know, get together and talk about both, you know, on a personal level and just how we both moved to Thailand and also our interest in yoga in person with you, I think now twice, and really looking forward to this conversation. And I should add uh, to attend your class as well. So it's been a pleasure and I'm I'm looking forward to speaking and thank you for making the time. My pleasure. Well, let's start off, you know, just for folks who aren't familiar with you or haven't heard any of your previous interviews, if you can tell people a little bit about how you became interested in practicing yoga. All right. Looking back, I'm always surprised how I didn't encounter yoga earlier. I was interested in in Eastern philosophy even back in high school, and I was interested in modern dance in college. I went to university in the Bay Area in the late 80s and didn't encounter yoga. did some Taekwondo in college as well. But mostly I wasn't a very athletic person. I then went off and worked in Silicon Valley for about seven years. And towards the end of that, a coworker of mine asked me one day if I was interested in practicing yoga with him. And I said, sure. <laughs> Always up for something new. And he, he taught me some basic ashtanga, uh, mostly actually pranayama. So finally got into it in my, that was, um, I guess, just around age 29 or so. And then I didn't pursue it seriously for quite a while. I quit my job in Silicon Valley and went traveling and sort of looking for 
more worthwhile things to do than working in the computer and software industry. And then got into conservation biology, actually, and, and ended up sort of doing yoga on the side, somewhat casually, went to grad school in evolutionary biology, and had a breakup at that point, too. And that's when I realized that yoga was no longer optional in my life. <laughs> that it was the one thing that, that kept me sane, the one thing I was really looking forward to. I was maybe practicing three or four times a week by then. That was around 2004. And then as grad school became more and more stressful, eventually I just realized that I really, what I really wanted to do was yoga. And so I, I finished my master's degree and then directly the next month went into a yoga teacher training program, got my certification and started teaching the very next month and have been teaching full-time ever since. Now, what really sort of brought me to yoga, I think, was very simply that it was the one thing in my life that made me feel really good, made me feel centered, made me feel happy. So it was very visceral. I actually remember in just around the time when I, when I first started practicing yoga in 1997, maybe a year later, I, when I, I was actually doing a career counseling course because I, I knew I wanted to get out of Silicon Valley, but I just, there are too many other things I was interested in and I didn't know how to narrow them down. And I remember having a thought then, 1998, maybe I should be a yoga teacher. And I dismissed that idea immediately because, I mean, at that point it was probably <laughs> the reasonable thing to do because I'd only been practicing for less than a year. But I just dismissed it in part because I, you know, I felt like, you know, not, you're not athletic enough. You're not thin enough. You know, you're not really the type. But then pretty much exactly 10 years later, it came back around. And here I am now. I've been teaching yoga for nine years. So how old were you when you started teaching at that point? So I started teaching at age... 42, which is pretty late, I guess. And I've been listening to or reading a lot of bios and yoga teachers and listening to Jay Brown's podcast where he's interviewing a lot of yoga teachers. And it seems like a lot of yoga teachers got started in their, even in their teens or certainly right after college. So I guess that's a little bit of an anomaly. It's my, my third career in a way. But I really feel like I finally, I finally come home. I finally have found my calling. That's wonderful. That's great. It is. <laughs> having, uh, having been to one of your classes, I can definitely see that for sure. Okay. So, so let me ask you, we, we spoke a little bit about your, your bio and your background. And I'm curious how your practice evolved over time. You know, you talked about a little bit what that looked like early on, but I'm just curious, how did that change over time? as you began to practice for a number of years and go to grad school? and Yeah. I've, I've listened to quite a few yoga teacher bios um, on various podcasts now. And it seems like there's a very common pattern that yoga teachers start out with a very vigorous, intense, physical, athletic practice. And at least some of them, sooner or later, realize that that's not really the most beneficial focus and and quite a few of these teachers have sort of changed their practice dramatically to a, a more gentle or maybe even extremely gentle practice. Now, my practice was never that hardcore to begin with, even though I started with Ashtanga, which is, you know, has a reputation for being one of the more physical styles. Even there, my introduction was pranayama, actually, more than asana practice. And... I've, I've never been super athletic. I'm not competitive at all, so I never really participated in group sports. And that was actually initially one of the reasons why I thought that it was sort of preposterous for me to become a yoga teacher because I felt like I wasn't athletic enough. So that same mindset, this idea that yoga is about physical practice, about pushing your limits, I, I had that same mindset. I just sort of knew that that wasn't right for me or that wasn't me. So having said all that, even my practice has gotten more gentle over time. But maybe because I never, I didn't start out 
pushing my physical boundaries very strongly ever. I've not, I've not um, moved too far from where I started. I, so I've, for example, I haven't stopped practicing or teaching some more advanced poses that certain teachers like Jay Brown, for example, doesn't actually teach at all anymore, like crow pose. And the, the reason is, the reason I still teach those poses is because I think that we can learn something important from them that we can't learn very well otherwise. And that is that it is possible to approach your edge, not with the intention of pushing past it, which is, I think, what what most people do when they think about the edge. It's like, how can I, can I come to my edge and then maybe tomorrow, can I push my edge a little bit farther so I can achieve more? But rather, can we come to our edge not to reinforce our goal-oriented tendencies, but to notice that our goal-oriented tendencies are actually distracting us from the real purpose of the practice, which is to be more present in the here and now. And if you can realize that your goal-oriented tendencies, wanting to go farther, actually aren't helpful, then you can learn how to disrupt those tendencies, how to reduce the goal-oriented tendencies, the ego gratification tendencies. But if you make a practice super gentle, then you lose that opportunity because in order to learn how not to get stressed out, you have to stress yourself out mildly. I still remember when I, when I first started to think about this, this whole this approach to yoga that is sort of neither super physical, like, you know, achievement-oriented, but also not like, well, let's just, I mean, that achievement-oriented hardcore physical practice is obviously not helpful. Let's just forget about it. And I was in a sort of fairly mainstream yoga class with my wife. This was probably about well, nine, ten years ago before I started teaching. So we weren't actually married yet. We were in the class together and the crown pose of the class was Ekapada Raja Kapotasana or King Pigeon pose, which is uh, a backbend where, you know, in sort of the classical quote unquote full variation, you reach your hands past the sides of your head to grab your foot behind your back. Uh, while the other leg is out in front, you're sort of sitting on the floor. Pretty extreme pose. And we're working towards the pose quite diligently with a, a good, you know, advanced uh, senior teacher. And we were assisting each other in this pose. And because my wife and I were next to, next to each other, we, we ended up assisting each other. And, and so we're placing a strap around the ankle to hold on to, to, you know, make your make this possible, even if you couldn't reach your foot yet but the the idea was kind of like you walk your hands down the strap to try and get closer to your foot my wife was assisting me supporting my chest and the foot in the back i remember getting really attached to this idea of being able to reach my foot and i wasn't able to and that ended up yelling at my wife because she wasn't assisting me right Mm. right so it was sort of such a clear example of how my goal-oriented tendency in that moment was absolutely not helpful. It wasn't helping me get deeper into the pose. Instead, it was actually <laughs> making me yell at my wife. <laughs> not helpful, right? And that was, it, but it ended up being a huge aha moment for me. This like, wow, what what was I doing just there, <laughs> and and why was I doing that, and and what was it doing to me? And so this is where I started to think about this whole problem or this whole situation. And and again, like going there and getting, noticing the attachment to the goal and how that stressed me out, how it made me angry and how it made me blame somebody else ended up being a really powerful experience because I noticed that it wasn't helpful. And so... When we stay completely in our comfort zone, the possibility for positive transformation is somewhat limited, which doesn't mean that pushing as fast and as hard as you can go will means you will create more transformation more quickly. And 
that's actually sort of another way of talking about the same the same situation or the same the same problem like how how should we approach advanced asana are they is it useful is it not and i, I remember seeing a little graphic on facebook that one of my students who's also a yoga teacher had posted and it, it had a little circle drawn in the bottom left that said comfort zone and another circle drawn on the top right corner fairly far away that said where the good stuff happens and i looked at that this was sort of in december i think and i thought hmm there's something that that doesn't make sense to me here and it took me a couple of weeks of mulling it over to realize that what i was looking at that's sort of that's the the, the graphic representation i think of what of how mainstream yoga thinks the practice is beneficial we just the harder we push the closer we'll get to where the good stuff happens and I don't think that's true. And so I decided, okay, let me, let me redraw this the way I think uh, it reflects what's actually going on. And I drew a circle that said comfort zone. And I drew a concentric circle, bigger one, around that and wrote in that where the good stuff happens. And then another, even larger concentric circle around all that. And I wrote in there where the bad stuff happens. You um, pointed out that this actually matches or maps onto a concept from educational development theory called the zone of proximal development. And so I feel this, this way uh, from my own experience and my own teaching. You need to sort of meet your students where they are and then encourage them to go a little bit farther, to get out of their comfort zone so they can grow, they can they can transform themselves. But if you push them too far, if they push themselves too far, they end up just overshooting that, that zone of that sweet spot between not enough and too much. Yeah? I like to say more is not better than just the right amount, but less is also not better than just the right amount. So I find that my physical practice, come back to that, is, or my, my yoga practice still involves some asana practice and some of that asana practice is still somewhat challenging again the main reason being that i find it interesting to engage in that physical challenge to see how i react mentally and if i react negatively so i can catch myself and learn to disrupt that anyway that's um that's it in a nutshell <laughs> yeah i think that one idea that really gets to that sort of sweet spot you know, and there's a lot you said there and, and a lot to unpack, but obviously one issue that's kind of integral to, to all of this in terms of what's an optimal level for your practice or an optimal level for growth is, you know, your stress levels. And while you can certainly have too much stress, and we know that the physical impacts of stress on the body are really horrible for a number of reasons, you know, relating to chronic diseases, you know, lengthening or shortening um, lifespan, but too little stress is also a problem as well. You know, you do want a moderate amount of stress and it's, it's not only true with exercise, whether you're talking about, you know, lifting weights or running, it's, it's true with your job. It's true with, you know, purpose in your life. And so I guess that it, it makes a lot of sense what you're talking about, you know, that when we when we discuss the problems of too much physical yoga being too much stress that that that's an issue yes but that the goal isn't to have zero stress that there is a sweet spot to be had and of course it also relates to what your intention is as well for your practice yeah well the, i talk about the stress response a lot because i think people can relate to it and it, it allows us to unpack a lot of these things one thing that allows us to unpack, for example, is the interconnectedness between mind and body and how treating them as separate entities just makes no sense and you know, sort of leads us astray. In terms of sort of the right amount of stress, I think one way to unpack that is that short-term stress is a reasonable response to certain situations and it's simply a tool in our toolbox that 
sometimes is extremely useful. It is exactly the right tool to use under certain circumstances. But those circumstances have become very rare in our modern lives because those circumstances pretty much involve immediate physical threats to our health. And when stress becomes chronic is when it becomes really damaging. And, and so that's, that's the problem we are addressing when we talk about stress being bad. Really what we should be saying is chronic stress is problematic. One beautiful thing about yoga is that it seems to be very good at getting people and allowing people to reduce their chronic stress levels through the activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so that is a, a therapeutic purpose of yoga. Like if you're in chronic stress, going to yoga class makes you feel better because you are learning how to reactivate your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest mode. And so take you out of chronic stress because the fight or flight mode, which is the stress mode, and the rest and digest mode are they mutually inhibit each other. So when as one activates, it tends to calm the other one down. What I'm getting at when I talk about learning how not to get stressed out when stressful things are happening is another technique. Instead of learning how to calm back down and to take yourself out of chronic stress, potentially this technique means you can learn how to disrupt the stress response as it just starts happening. And so it's a preventative technique and thus maybe even more powerful or certainly as another very useful tool in your toolbox. But, but yeah, I would agree that, you know, saying all stress is bad is sort of, you know, taking another extreme viewpoint that is just as problematic as saying work hard, play harder, or, you know, our sort of very common and often unexamined more is better value judgment. So you're talking a bit about parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. And I think this is a really important part of the discussion because there's a lot of talk in yoga about yoga anatomy. And I know you've spent a lot of time diving into that. And I, I definitely want to get there as well because I think anatomy is important in biomechanics, but physiology is, is very important as well, what it's doing to your nervous system. And um, the way people talk about it, it's sort of like, parasympathetic is, it tends to be favored. The way people discuss it is kind of like the good thing, like you want, obviously, depending on what circles you're in, right? And this, this isn't only in yoga. It's what people talk about. Mindfulness, people talk about it in wellness. And there's a lot of truth in that because when the parasympathetic nervous system is active, you know, as you put it to rest and digest, what that means is, you know, it's all your different uh, bodily systems are really functioning in an optimal way. Whereas in the sympathetic state, because you're in fight or flight for survival mode, it inhibits the functioning of a lot of those bodily systems like digestive, reproductive. But, you know, both serve a function. And we're talking about finding a balance, right, in, in terms of taking on some stress, but not too much. I'm wondering how this determines, for example, how you sequence your classes and how do you kind of think about finding that right balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic and balancing physiology and the nervous system as you think about designing and then teaching a class? I think it's exactly right that what we're looking for always, and this is how I pr approach yoga, whenever I'm asking myself uh, in yoga, like, how should I, what should I be doing? Should I be doing this or that? I ask myself, what is going to bring me into greater balance? And whatever is bringing me into greater balance, I believe, is the most useful thing to do. And so, you know, again, if, if you're using your yoga practice to, to really emphasize the athletic aspects, to push yourself to new limits, to, you know, if you have a laundry list of advanced poses you'd like to be able to accomplish, then there is, a, there is an imbalance in your practice. And... Similarly, I would argue that if you remove any kind of physicality from your practice, any kind of physical challenge, there can be an imbalance in that. 
a simple example, uh, I live in Thailand, and a lot of temples have wax statues of their revered senior monks that at that point usually have passed on, but that, that you know were in charge of that, that temple. And they're always seated in seated meditation. They're very realistic, you know, of wax replicas. And they all have terrible posture. I mean, of course, they were, you know, in the 80s and 90s when they died. But Buddhist monks in Thailand don't engage in yoga and, uh, or any kind of sort of physical activity other than, than walking. I think it has a detrimental effect. So if we, if we think of the body as being this baggage that keeps us from reaching enlightenment, which is really how a lot of, sort of dualistic philosophies look at it, then I personally feel that we are actually missing out. In the history of yoga philosophy, that was the sort of dualistic view. How can we sort of minimize our physical desires and cravings, attachments and aversions so that we can leave that behind in order to create, in order to reach enlightenment, really. That was sort of the, the, the first thrust in like how, you know, how do you, how do you reach your potential? How do you become your own true self? I don't think that works very well for most people. And in the history of yoga, there was, uh, there were actually many traditions that, that went away from this idea and they're now called non-dualistic traditions. Tantra is, excuse me, the best known of those, but these non-dualistic traditions exist in, in other traditions. There's non-dualistic Vedanta, for example. And, and I'm, the way I approach yoga is very much non-dualistic. I feel like mind and body are two aspects of ourself that when they are in harmony, actually make it easier for us to access our true self. And, and so, again, I, I try to always move towards balance. And to get back to your question a little more directly, uh, so when I structure a class, I teach sort of fairly standard Hatha yoga classes. And there is always this is idea that there is more of an upregulation focus in the first 45 minutes of the class, and then more of a downregulation focus in the second 45 minutes of the class. I don't always incorporate pranayama and seated meditation, but over time I've started doing it more and more. And I, I really I emphasize the downregulation aspect. And I often talk about that what we're doing towards the end of class, like seated four bends, especially in these poses, it's not about getting your nose to your knee. It's about surrendering, letting go, calming down, becoming more at peace as preparation for Shavasana. And also, I never shorten the Shavasana. It's very important to me. I do at least 15 minutes uh, in a 90-minute class. And, you know, maybe one day I'll lengthen it even more, but I wouldn't want to shorten it any more than that. Fortunately, in my classes, people don't seem to get up in the middle of Shavasana to leave early. So I haven't really had to deal with that problem. But if, if, I, if I had students who do that, I would take them aside and tell them that they're, they're missing the point. So, I, I, you know, I, there's these anecdotes about that being very standard practice in New York City and other big cities. I ha haven't actually experienced it myself, but I'm, I'm willing to believe it. But again, that's, if you do that, if you, you know, do a rigorous practice and then you get up before Shavasana and get, you know, get to your next appointment, you are seriously shortchanging yourself and what your practice can do for you. Now, you're reinforcing the tendencies you already have that are already not serving you. So that's another way of saying how do you create more balance in your practice? Make your practice smarter than your habits. Like observe what your habits are and then see if you can make your practice smarter than that. If you can incorporate some of, your, of the counterpoints to those tendencies in your practice. Because right? I find that most people end up replicating you know, what they, their pre-existing tendencies, type A personalities gravitate towards Ashtanga yoga and, you know, power flow 
because that's reinforcing their already existing tendencies. And type B personalities are the ones that show up for gentle yoga and restorative yoga. And again, it's not that one or the other type of yoga is bad, but rather that if it's just reinforcing the tendencies that are already too strong in you, then it's not the most helpful practice for you. You know, I always want to kind of redirect the people into maybe the, you know, sort of suggest to people in the powerful classes that maybe they should take a restorative class sometime and vice versa. But so for that reason, the classes I teach, I don't teach restorative yoga generally. I teach it sometimes at a, as a one session of a weekend workshop. But each class I teach is, I try for it to be balanced between upregulation and downregulation, to be inherently balanced. Can you say more about why Shavasana is so important? You know, not just, you know, maybe psychologically, but also physically, physiologically. I don't remember where I read or heard this. And I also don't know to what degree is this, this is true, but I find it an interesting idea that when you're in Shavasana, you feel like you're not actually doing anything, that your brain is actually, it's a, it's a great, because of the physical inactivity, it's a good time for your brain to kind of process what you have been doing in the last hour and a half and to kind of move stuff you've learned from short-term to long-term storage in your memory. But in addition to that, and quite independent of it, uh, maybe even more importantly, I really emphasize the power of not doing or undoing in Shavasana. And again, this is, is one of these dichotomies that we, you know, doing and non-doing or doing and undoing. And our cultural bias takes us towards doing, right? If you want to get something done, you got to do something. How could that not be helpful? How could that not be the right thing to do? But the more we focus on doing, the more we distract ourselves from being. And so in Shavasana, we have the opportunity to focus on being. You know, for 15 minutes out of your 90 minutes, focus on being. And in order to really do that, you have to stop doing so much. And so uh, the benefits of undoing or of non-doing are real. Again, because when we do too much, we, we lose sight of ourselves. We lose sight of, of ourselves as beings. And, and Shavasana you know, kind of puts that on the, on the menu. It's like, here, 15 minutes of being. And it's interesting to see how many people find it really, really difficult to not move, to not do something for not even 15 minutes, but two minutes. You know, there's always somebody in class who every two minutes, they're scratching something, they're adjusting something else, they're flopping around. And again, that's just a, a huge sign saying, hey, I have this really strong tendency of wanting to do stuff all the time. Maybe the answer to that isn't to do even more, but maybe the answer lies in adding some of the opposite, you know, doing some undoing, which of course is an oxymoron. I, I thank you for that answer. And I think I wanted to ask it in part because I've also heard people make this point, which I think is, is an interesting one and fair. It's a it says something about the asana practice preceding it as well, when people have a hard time settling down. I, I think there's obviously variation between individuals for sure, but I've heard some teachers make the argument that you will find many times when you see, you'll see patterns and when students are practicing in a certain way, a more vigorous way, and particularly if they're breathing in a certain way, specifically if they're hyperventilating, then they will find it harder to kind of settle down afterwards. So it can also be feedback, not only for the individual, but for the teacher when looking at a group as well. Is that, is that something that you've come across from teaching different styles of yoga over the years? That's an interesting observation I haven't really thought too much about. Uh, I think you're right. But at the same time, so again, this is related, just bear with me. For this reason, Again, I started out doing Ashtanga, and as I started to learn more about physiology and the autonomic nervous system and, and how this all works, I, was, I couldn't figure out why. In Ashtanga, the last pose before Shavasana is 
Tulasana. I think it's called Upluti in, in Ashtanga. It's, a, it's an arm balance in lotus pose. You're supporting yourself on your hands, and your legs are lifted off the floor in lotus. And you hold it to a count of 10. And it made no sense to me because it's such an upregulating asana. It's, it's a lot of work because you're, not just, you're just, just stacking your arm bones. You have to engage your core to lift yourself unless your arms are super long. And then it's often made even more upregulating by this sort of a common game that Ashtanga teaches engage in of slowing the count way down <laughs> or even starting over like one, two, three, one. <laughs> and, you know, what this does, of course, is it, it like kicks the student's stress mode into hyperdrive. You're like, what is this going to end? But then I realized that there, there's more than one way to downregulate. And one way to downregulate is to actually upregulate dramatically to the point where you fatigue your muscles so that you kind of sort of collapse into relaxation afterwards. And that, that actually works. I think for people who don't know how to be still, that may actually be the more, most effective technique for the time being. It sort of plays to their strength and then sort of tricks them into collapsing into relaxation anyway. The problem, though, is that some of these students kind of misunderstand the point and think that the, the hardcore workout is the real point and the shavasana is just an afterthought, when, in fact, the hardcore workout may have been designed to facilitate the shavasana that follows. So I, I do think that, that you can unskillfully construct the class in, in such a way that you kind of make it harder for your students to have a, to sort of relax into shavasana. But it's not as simple as saying that a, a practice that is sort of hardcore all the way to the end is not necessarily effective. I think it can be effective, but again, it sort of harbors the danger of getting students to maybe misunderstand what's happening. Like you have to explain this, I think, and I have never actually heard it explained in one of those classes. That brings me to another point, which is classes that I go to, at least, there, there seems to be now a sort of, a, again, I think it's probably a minor current in mainstream yoga, but more classes seem to incorporate a little bit of yoga philosophy, a little bit of talk about mindfulness and so on. But what I find often is that the connection between that part and the actual physical practice isn't really made. So I remember taking a class last year that the, the theme pretty much was do less, feel more. But it was, you know, a vinyasa flow class where that was pretty standard with all the sort of standard transitions and, you know, lots of chaturangas and, and advanced poses. And so they, even though the theme was, was there and it was actually well-developed in terms of the talk around it, there's a, it wasn't really tied into the physical practice. And there's lots of things you can do. The example I use all the time is, can you do whatever pose you're doing with less neck tension? And this is one tendency we have, a very strong tendency we have. When we do something physically difficult, we tense our necks because we know that tensing our necks actually puts us into stress mode. And we subconsciously know that when we're in stress mode, we actually are measurably physically stronger. So this is one of the, the things I do. I, I, I ask people who are comfortable to go into crow to go into crow. And then I ask them, can you do crow with a relaxed neck? And that, <laughs> that is a whole nother challenge. And, and I think a very useful one. Again, it's, it's learning how to not get stressed out when apparently stressful things are happening. So there's a lot of things we can do as yoga teachers to, to kind of connect, talk about philosophy, talk about physiology to what we're doing physically at the time. And that's something I really try to emphasize. And, and I think the more we can do of that, the greater the benefits of our practice, getting mind and body more closely connected in very, very real, succinct way. So, because when you relax the back of the neck in crow pose, you are literally disrupting your stress response. You're literally changing your biochemistry. You're literally changing what your nervous system is doing in that moment in time. That's a really powerful thing to learn. It is. I have to say, I've been experimenting with that on my own since coming to your class where you incorporated that as your theme for the week. And I've been in my personal practice adjusting several of the poses 
you know, for example, I guess cow would be one of them, you know, where you're, and also lunges as well, where mm-hmm. normally I would, I would come up and it's, it's bringing that head back. It's the throat forward, head up, and you are sort of scrunching the back of the neck. And so I've been experimenting with that and kind of keeping the chin in and the back of the neck long. And it, it definitely has a different feeling. It definitely has a, a more relaxed quality. And I think either way, it's just something that's good to be conscious of and, and to play with because then the more aware of it you are, the more you can work with and potentially catch any moments where you might be jumping into something that could trigger that response. Exactly. And and there's two really big points to be made here. One is that it's not that one way is right and the other one is wrong, but rather that in the process of experimenting and doing something slightly differently and noticing how it makes you feel different, that's where the real power of yoga lies. It's the power of investigation, the power of becoming more present in the here and now, noticing what's actually happening in your body and in your mind and making the connections between what's happening in your body, maybe influencing what's happening in your mind and vice versa. And then you might realize that doing a high lunge with spaciousness in the back of the neck actually literally feels better. So two more points on this. One is you were saying you just use the words pulling the chin in. And pulling the chin in can help lengthen the neck. But it's interesting. And people talk about it this way all the time. Pulling the chin in is emphasizing another doing. You're pulling the chin in which hopefully will have the effect of relaxing something. And and to some degree, there is a link. But I, when I instruct this, I don't tell people to pull the chin in. I tell people to lengthen the back of the neck or relax the back of the neck. And we can, we can get nerdy about physiology for a moment if you want to. And I, and I actually do this in class a lot because it's, this isn't, again, this is sort of a, another way to explain on a physiological fairly, it's not simple, but it's approachable for most people, this, this idea of doing and undoing. So we tend to think of movement being the result of muscle contraction, right? I mean, this is so obvious that it sort of doesn't, like, why would you even say that? It's not true. Movement is the result of some muscles contracting and other muscles relaxing. And you can prove this to yourself by bending your elbow and contracting your triceps, I'm sorry, your biceps really strongly, I usually do it the other way around, but I'm going to try this way. Contract your biceps. You can do it right now as you're listening to this podcast, dear listeners. And then keeping your biceps fully contracted, straighten your elbow by contracting your triceps. And I bet you your biceps are stronger than your triceps. And as long as you keep your biceps contracted, no movement will happen. Straightening your arm requires your triceps to contract, and it also requires your biceps to relax. And so the movement, any movement, and especially graceful, balanced movement is the result of some muscles contracting and other muscles relaxing. The relaxation of those other muscles is somewhat automatic because we have a reflex called reciprocal inhibition that when you contract your triceps, a reflex signal is sent to the biceps, inhibiting the contraction of the biceps. So to some degree, this is automatic. And so contracting some muscles will help relax others. And so, but unfortunately, the muscles that pull your chin in, when you contract those muscles, they don't send a reflex signal to the muscles in the back of the neck. So muscles come in, or muscle groups come in pairs called antagonists. And they're labeled as such because they do the opposite action. And between these two groups of antagonistic muscles, this reflex actually exists. So the muscles (laughs) that actually help you relax the muscles in the back of the neck. The ones we tense when we get stressed out are called the neck extensors, as a sort of gross term. The muscles that help relax those muscles, help relax the neck extensors through reciprocal inhibition are the deep neck flexors. The deep neck flexors are not the muscles you use typically when you pull your chin in. So this instruction of pulling the chin in is a very common one, not just in yoga, but if you, if you sort of do a, you know, go to YouTube and search for, or just Google, you know, a head forward position, you'll see lots of instructions to pull the chin in. But in my experience, they don't work very well. 
because you can pull your chin in and you can, again, you can try it as you're listening to this podcast, like tilt your head back, tense the back of the neck, and then pull your chin in and notice that you probably end up just shortening the front of the throat as well as the back of the neck. But if you, if you tilt your head back, again, strongly and tense the neck extensors, and then you think about lengthening the back of the head upward and the shoulder blades down the back at the same time and actually teach this at a wall which makes it easier then you're actually emphasizing the undoing of the tension in the back of the neck that's getting in the way rather than emphasizing yet another doing somewhere else that may or may not help undo that neck tension so that you can have the real physical examples of the power of undoing and i incorporate this in my into my classes because i think it's a really really important lesson. Interesting. So let me ask you something taking, we've been focusing a lot on physiology and I, I know that you've also studied anatomy and, and biomechanics mm -hmm. a lot as well, clearly related, but also distinct. You know, I'm wondering what are, let's start with this perhaps, how essential do you think it is to have a solid understanding of anatomy and biomechanics in order to perhaps not only teach yoga, but to really practice it effectively for, for people in the audience who might not be teachers, but just, you know, practicing for years and serious practitioners. And if you could perhaps also define what biomechanics is for people who might not know. I would say these are all potential tools in your toolbox and uh, they can be helpful and they can be useless <laughs> depending on how you use them and and you know whether you know some people are sort of naturally drawn to looking at things this way and and for them it might be helpful and some people find that it just stresses them out because it just seems like such a complicated subject matter that you know they just tune out and then it's clearly not helpful but you know try to make it very directly applicable so that people can experience what I'm talking about in their own bodies in real time and, and, and see the benefits. Yeah, I would, I would say that of those three, anatomy, biomechanics, and physiology, and anatomy is probably the least important. And so, you know, the fact that your teacher trainings have a yoga anatomy, 20-hour yoga anatomy requirement, I would, I mean, talking about requirements for yoga teacher training is a whole other ball of wax. But, but really, I think that should be called yoga physiology and biomechanics. So biomechanics really is the, the study of the body in motion, uh, whereas anatomy is simply the study of the parts. <clears throat> and, and that's why anatomy really is sort of least helpful. In fact, the meaning of the word anatomy, I believe, relates to cutting things apart like into its constituents and and that can become a real distraction from the path because if we if we think ourselves as a whole bunch of parts assembled together like a bicycle that is a clearly incorrect image or analogy for what we are we we all grew from one cell we're not an assembled bicycle or car we grew from one cell and so Everything, every little part of us is actually literally connected, in fact, emerged from the same single cell. So anatomy can be a real distraction. I actually like what, what one, of my, one of my anatomy teachers, I think he, he says this at the beginning of each workshop he teaches, his name is Roger Cole, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, knowing anatomy does not automatically make you an expert yogi. Not knowing anatomy does not mean that you cannot become an expert yogi. But knowing some anatomy and physiology and biomechanics may help you become a more expert yogi. And that, that's, that's how I feel about it too. It's, it's another tool in your toolbox that can be used to your advantage and it can be used to your disadvantage. If you're if you've got a screw, you're trying to screw into a piece of wood and you're doing it with a hammer, that's the wrong tool for the job. <laughs> and, and again, there's been a bit of a, a move recently. I was at a, a symposium last year called Beyond Anatomy, and it was three 
very well-respected yoga anatomy teachers, Leslie Kaminoff, Peter Blackaby from England, and Amy Matthews, who works with Leslie Kaminoff in New York City. And they created a symposium to talk about why they were kind of getting out of teaching anatomy. And so looking at my own teaching, I actually have, I, I teach a 30-hour yoga anatomy workshop, and I haven't taught it in a few years. I teach it as part of the teacher training, and I will probably teach it again next year. But I have been kind of de-emphasizing that to some degree. But I feel like throwing it out completely is, is a little bit like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It, it can be a useful tool. If you get too obsessed over the anatomical, you know, what, what's going on, like, you know, when, I'm, when I lift my arm overhead, okay, what muscles am I contracting? Yeah, that, that can actually be unhelpful because it might distract you from the experience of the movement by overanalyzing it. So I, I understand the impetus, but I, again, I feel like if we've been doing too much of something, the answer is not to discard it entirely, but to figure out what the right amount is. Too little is, if we've been doing something too much, then maybe doing it too little for a while is helpful and balancing. But in the end, again, we want to sort of do the right amount, and that's somewhere in the middle. And then uh, physiology, which often sort of gets wrapped up, really is the internal workings of, of your body and your mind. And again, like anatomy, part of why it's unhelpful or can be unhelpful is that it, it uh, is basically looking at a dead body. You know, to, to study anatomy, you're literally dissecting cadavers. And a dead body is something very, very different from a living body a living body-mind complex, right? And so it can actually mislead you. And the, the sort of most dramatic example of that is that historically in anatomy, the connective tissue was discounted. Its importance was not really understood. And the reason is that when you're dissecting a body, when you sort of cut parts apart, what you're cutting through all the time is connective tissue. It seems to be the stuff that's in the way of you being able to isolate parts because the connective tissue is actually literally connecting all those parts. And that function is extremely important. But if you're just looking for parts, you're unable to see the whole. And so again, that's, that's why you know uh, anatomy can be helpful sometimes. But again, that's your main way of, of sort of accessing knowledge about the body and the mind, then you're, um, it's just one tool and it does not give you a complete picture. No tool really can, right? That's a model. Any model is always a simplification of the real thing. So it's always helpful to have multiple models because looking at it, looking at the body-mind complex from different perspectives, each one will distort something, but maybe also get at some kind of truth. And if you do it from multiple angles, you get a better and better picture of what it really is like. Right. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that body-mind complex again, because I know that connection between mind and body. I mean, it, it's certainly central, I think, to all of us who practice yoga. But you, you chose to name your, your company after this. And, you know, we talked about this before, is, is how important it is to you is really the the process of yoga being all about facilitating that connection. And when we were speaking earlier about in Thailand, for example, you know, the issue with the monks, and I definitely know what you're talking about. And I've, I've thought that myself before as someone who appreciates seated meditation, when I look at the lifestyle of a monastic setting, it seems totally skewed and, and out of balance. You know, there's, there's no real exercise. I mean, walking is the only form of, of exercise, a very slow walking. And it doesn't kind of allow for a very, perhaps it's too harsh, but you know, you can't really explore mindfulness-based techniques that really allow you to connect with your, in an embodied way. I mean, of course, the actual seated meditation practices do that, but it, it really is using kind of two techniques, a seated meditation or a walking meditation. And We've been talking a lot about the value for you of an asana practice, and we talked a bit about pranayama, but I'm just curious what your seated meditation practice looks like, and in your own life, 
how you kind of strike that balance, not only between mindfulness-based movement, but also the what's the role of, of stillness and, and not moving and just being totally quiet, not only in Shavasana, but, but actually in a, in a seated meditation practice for you? Yeah, good, good question. I don't have a very strong seated meditation practice. And um, the, the reason is that I, I find that a mindful movement practice is actually more beneficial for me. When I do a seated practice, my mind often kicks into overdrive. I have a bit of a hyperactive mind. And I found that actually some very simple, slow, mindful movement really helps me quiet the mind. And so, again, that's part of why I'm a yoga teacher and not a meditation teacher. I find for me personally, mindful movement is actually generally more helpful than seated meditation. So when I do seated meditation, I it usually is incorporated into practice that also incorporates some movement and some pranayama. So in a way, I prepare myself for seated meditation through pranayama and again, very, very simple mindful movement. My favorite is right now, at least it's been for a couple of years now, the first four poses of sun salutation. So Tadasana, standing, stand, standing posture, inhaling the arms up into Hasta Tadasana, exhaling into a forward bend called Uttanasana, inhaling halfway up into Ardha Uttanasana, and then going backwards through that sequence back to Tadasana and back and forth. And um, that helps me quiet my mind because I, I do it slowly from the breath spreading my awareness to as many body parts as I can at the same time. And it literally helps me move into a meditative state. And if you want, we, I can try to briefly explain the neuroscience that relates to this, but we can also skip over sure. that. Go ahead. So this is something that I have learned, uh, first encountered through Richard Miller. So if you want to know more about this, you should look him up. He teaches something called iRest, which is his variation. It's based on yoga nidra, which are sort of profound relaxation techniques. But current neuroscience, so for a long time, neuroscience was concerned with sort of identifying regions of the brain and what they're responsible for. And for a while, you know, decades ago, that looked like sort of the key to sort of unlocking the mysteries of the brain. And it turned out that there are tendencies like that, of course, and, you know, there's a temporal low because it's related to time. And there's, you know, there, 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 are, there are certainly sort of specializations in brain regions, but there's also a lot of duplication and, and distributed processing. And so at some point, we sort of, the, the power to explain how the brain works by identifying regions that do specific things, the power to explain things sort of we ran out of explanatory power somewhere along the way. And then people realized that another way to look at what how the brain works and what it's doing is that they noticed that there were patterns in which different constellations of brain regions would activate in the same patterns. And so these are typically referred to as brain networks. And people notice that they are very consistent patterns. And so they started naming these different patterns. And uh, one of these networks is called the default mode network. And it is the mode in which we find ourselves most of the time. And the default mode network is pretty good at keeping us alive. Sort of it's, and for that purposes, it, it has a built-in negativity bias. So because it's better to mistake a stick for a snake than a snake for a stick. It tends to be self-referential. It tends to be concerned with the past and the future. We're constantly sort of evaluating what has happened to us and how we might act in the future to improve outcomes. But it has a, a bias towards looking at the world as um, us as an individual and everything else as the other. So there's a sense of separation from the world. 
And we experience this as being the true representation of the world, but it's actually a particular way in which our brain works that gives us this perspective. So when people started looking at these networks, they looked at brain activity in people who are meditating and noticed that they have a very different pattern of activation. And that network is usually called the present-centered mode network. And they noticed that when this constellation of brain regions is active, we experience the world very differently. We, the, uh, the negativity bias falls away. The obsession with the past and the future falls away. That's why it's called the present-centered mode network. We're, we're more present in the moment. Our sense of separation from the world diminishes. We feel more connected. These are all things that, that people describe when they're meditating. The, the trick is, like, how do you switch out of one network into another? There's actually one network that is a switching network that helps with that. But again, this is something we need to practice. And people who, so another interesting point here is that people who meditate regularly, who, who switch into present-centered mode network and meditation, eventually they end up spending more and more time in present-centered mode network, even when they're not meditating. You know, this when you're in present-centered mode network, I think that's sort of the scientific description of someone who is mindful, somebody who is really present in the here and now, you know, the, these, somebody who is doing these ancient mindfulness practices that we know. But how do, you, how do you make that switch happen? And what if you're sitting there trying to meditate and you feel like the default mode network is just continuing on, it's just going crazy? Turns out one way, the most, one of the more effective ways to switch into present-centered mode network is to become aware of multiple things at once. And so there are many meditation techniques that, that take advantage of this. So there's one I like to use called unfocused listening. And the point is to literally sort of hold in your awareness multiple, everything you can hear without identifying it, without attaching yourself to it, without labeling it as good or bad. But you can do the same kind of practice in yoga. And it may be easier there for most people. So when I do my asana practice, I try to spread my awareness to multiple parts of my body as well as my breath. And I find that I can activate the present sentient mode network more easily in a simple movement pattern than I can usually when I'm in seated meditation. So the, the bigger point here is that not we're all different and the techniques that work best for us may be techniques that don't work very well for somebody else. And so a big part of the process of making your practice more effective is to find the techniques that really work for you. And for some people, seated meditation may work great and then go with that, but augment it with some other practices. You know? And so again, like even though I, I find, and seated meditation is, is usually considered a more advanced stage right, compared to uh, yoga asana practice or pranayama. And, and I, I think there's probably something true to that. But the reason I, I continue to do seat meditation too is because, again, I, I want to sort of uh, have several practices and also see, you know, and I think over time my seated meditation practice probably has gotten uh, more effective. But again, I think partly because I've made my asana practice so meditative and mindful. Right. And I mean, different things are going to work for different people. No question. Just wanted to ask you that. So I'm conscious of your time and I, I'm thinking this could be a, a good place to, to wrap up, Guerno, because I think we've hit, you know, physiology, anatomy and biomechanics, which I all really wanted to, to touch on with you, all areas of your expertise. But before we go, I want to give you an opportunity just to let our audience know about any upcoming offerings that you might have or workshops or where they can find you? Yeah. Um, best place is my website, yogamind, yogabody.com. And all my trainings are listed there. Um, I have a weekly blog in which I recapitulate a lot of the topics we talked about. So if you find, found this interesting, you might want to sign up to receive my blog in your mail. You can do that on my website. I'm also on Facebook. But um, the, my my 
most in-depth retreat of the year happens in Montana every August at Feathered Pipe Ranch. So I want to just let you know about that. It's August 25th through September 1st. And if you're in North America, I know Montana is pretty much pretty far from where most people live in North America, but it's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place and worth the trip. Thanks, Adrian, for bringing me on your podcast. Thank you for your time. Always enjoy speaking with you.